what ODASC and Upwork were doing for teams, I think Skillshare is sort of doing for the individual. That same yeah. leverage you get through being able to, you know, farm out work to a global team, you can get the same individual, and whether again, whether that's personal or professional, by tapping into all of this expertise that is all over the planet, that if you're you know, sitting in rural Idaho, you don't have access to the artists and the engineers and the designers and the creatives that you can now tap into through this global learning platform, you know, at Skillshare. Hey there, this is Ben. Thanks for tuning in to Lead the Team. Before we jump in, we just broke into the top 3% of all podcasts globally, and that's largely due to the support of listeners just like you. I invite you to subscribe so you're notified when we release a new episode and also leave a quick review. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Lead the team nation. Hang on to your house today because I have a great one in store for you with Matt Cooper, who is the CEO of Skillshare. Since joining in November 2016, he's led the company to significant growth on both sales and subscribers, and Skillshare has more than 800,000 paying subscribers today. He brings and strikes the perfect balance of operational excellence and an entrepreneurial spirit to his role, and has led a number of strategic initiatives surrounding employee experience and compensation, including equity grant transparency and a no-negotiation salary policy, and we'll touch on those a little bit today in our interview. And both of these, by the way, have earned him recognition as a top leader. And previously, he has served as CEO visually and held senior leadership roles over at Upwork and Scribble Live. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So I ran across a little talk that you came out with a couple of years ago. And frankly, it had me in stitches because there was some great humor uh, that that you infused it with. But one of the lines that really uh, jumped out at me uh, was you said, I haven't been a CEO long enough to believe my own bullshit. Now, <laughs> I, I, I was like, this is the guy who, who's, who knows how to knows about a thing or two about direct communication. And you had just, I believe, taken on the CEO role. CEO role about that time. Now you're a few years into it. Uh, what's your perspective on that now? Yeah, I mean, I think I sort of not believing my own bullshit's probably it goes well beyond CEO roles. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I'm a pretty just pragmatic, realistic, even keeled guy mm -hmm. uh, in general. But uh, you know, I just I think we have all seen leaders, managers, CEOs, people in positions of authority who take themselves a little too seriously and uh, drink a little too much of their own Kool-Aid, uh, and it doesn't generally serve them well over the long haul. Is this something, so thinking back in your career, maybe even when you were a kid, is this something that you saw role modeled for you? Uh, or, you know, where does this just inherent in your personality? I mean, when when did this sort of come out? Yeah, I mean, I think I've I've had the opportunity of working for some great people over the years, and and mm -hmm. you know I've seen plenty of people who 
I didn't want to work for <laughs> over the years. And, you know, mm-hmm. you, I think as you, as you get more experience and just, I mean, hell forget work, just as you go through life, you start to pick out the people who you think, all right, I want to be a little more like that one, a little less like this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I certainly have gravitated towards people who are, you know, low drama, high integrity, um, low BS uh, over the years. And I think that's, I'm sure it's somewhat innate. Uh, I'm sure it's somewhat, you know, my parents, my friends, people have been around my entire life, how I was raised, where I was raised, et cetera. But um, also you just start to see what works and and what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And um, I think particularly within startup and tech, there are definitely CEOs who a lot of their success uh, is based on sort of creating that reality distortion zone around them. Uh, that jobs. is not me, you know, <laughs> that's not me. Yeah. That's not what I'm good at. I'm uh, mm-hmm. probably pragmatic to a fault. So that's sort of where so, I skew. In so let's, let's, let's translate that perspective into how it shows up on a daily basis. So say uh, there's a crisis or something urgent at work and you pull your staff in uh, and you're not creating that reality distortion field that Steve Jobs was so famous for. Uh, how, how does it show up in terms of how you lead the meeting, how you approach things? Uh, how does it make it different? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, I think whether this is good or bad, I've sort of been accused of getting into professor mode hmm. of like, let me explain this concept and like go into the detail of like, here's the situation. Here's how we got into this situation. Here are the nuts and bolts of what's really going on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Therefore, here are the levers that we have to pull in. Therefore, we think we need to go in this direction. And here's how we're going to shift. Um, so I think it's it tends to be like when the house is on fire, it's like, all right, here are the buckets we need to grab. Here's where we need to go throw those buckets, as opposed to, you know, sort of um, spinning people into a frenzy, good or bad. Um, right. And, and again, mm-hmm. like that, I think so. The, the positive side of my style is I think I'm pretty even keeled in a crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, the negative side of my style is sometimes I'm really even keeled in a crisis, you know, where maybe you need to jump up and down and scream a little bit or mm-hmm. you need a little more inspiration, a little less perspiration. You know, I think those are the trade offs. Um, I tend to lean towards the, the pragmatism and the directness and the look, here's what it is, what it is. Let's go fix it. Um, I'm probably not going to, uh, you know, give the next Shakespearean speech of how <laughs> we're going to take that hill. You're going to go off on all soliloquy or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I think it's really interesting too. So they're, I'm experiencing what you're saying on two different levels. One is, you know, how you approach it, but two for leaders, uh, you know, you're willing to evaluate, like you're, you've evaluated your own leadership approach, right? You know what to look out for in an urgent situation. You're like, this is how I normally do. And this is sort of the shadow side of that. And maybe you can compensate for it by, you know, I mean, if you need to, by bringing other people's ideas in or maybe yeah. giving them a dose of inspiration if they need it more, you know, more. And, yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, again, I, I think I can, um, you know, I know when to turn it up, turn it down, but I also know that there are certain certain things I'm going to be more effective and we're going to deliver the message better with, you know, bringing in teachers to talk about their experience or bringing students and like, how did this change their lives? Mm-hmm. Um, 
that to me is, I think in given my style and my strengths and weaknesses, that is more effective in many cases, kind of bringing the outside in um, is ultimately more effective than me trying to deliver something that I'm just, I know I'm just not that great at delivering. Yeah, I love that. And it, it takes a lot of self-awareness to be able to do that versus just hard charging ahead. And is that something that you've looked to foster or do you work with a coach or where does this uh, awareness come from? Or or maybe it's just innate to, to, to how you go about doing things. I, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. And I think again, sort of the, you know, the lack of reality distortion applies to sort of self-assessing mm-hmm. what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. Um, I have worked, you know, I have worked with coaches over the years Um and I think my team also just feels comfortable giving me feedback. Um, you know, we had a we had a company meeting last week, and uh, you know, our director of people operations described my delivery as somewhere between a hockey player giving the post game interview and Eeyore. <laughs> <laughs> so when you get you know when you get that kind of feedback, it's like okay, clearly I needed to dial up the energy. Maybe I was a little tired that day. But also, I've clearly created a, an environment where people feel very comfortable giving me feedback. So, um, you know. Yeah. And and by the way, okay, so that is hilarious, first of all. And the fact that they can have that level of humor with you, you know, is huge. And that's that's what you want as a leader. You don't want it to be one direction. I mean, maybe it feels good for a while, but to get that, people be nodding their head, yeah, let's do that. But to get that kind of feedback, even on your own own personal performance, it is invaluable. Yeah. Um, well, and, and look, they're they're saying it. They just whether or not they say it to you is the question. Um, yeah, they're so saying it. Would, which leads me to your comment on Glassdoor from that same video. Uh, you're not yeah. a fan of Glassdoor. <laughs> no, so, t- so tell me the difference, or like, what's your perspective on getting feedback face to face? You know, saying your delivery is like a post-game interview of a, of, of a hockey player and Eeyore versus getting feedback on Glassdoor. Yeah, I, look, I, I want to hear direct feedback. And I want to hear feedback in time to do something about it. Hmm. And so, you know, again, this, you know, our director of people ops who gave me fit. We did a dry run for a smaller group and then we were doing the broader meeting for the entire company yeah. the next day. And so, like, she gave me the feedback. It was very direct. It was very clear. And I could do something about it. And, you know, I know that she cares about me. She cares about the team. She wanted me to do better in that next meeting. And, you know, the next meeting I was, you know, I delivered the first version. I was literally on the side of the road on this road trip with my daughter. And I'd been mm-hmm. up driving since 5 a.m. I was exhausted. Like, it was just not a great, I'm in a car trying to deliver this message. I made damn sure that I had some sleep. I was in the right place mentally, physically for the next meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, when you get feedback from someone walking out the door that's very one-sided, that's sort of born out of emotion and frustration, um, you still have to look. There's still honest. There is still truth to be found in those glass door reviews, mm-hmm. and so you can't just dismiss them. And that's not like that's not the right thing either. Um, but if they had given me that feedback at the company in the moment, um, that's where we can really give. That's that's where we can actually go do something about it and drive change. Um, and so I love the employees who come give me hard messages while they're here, 
because they mm. want to make positive change and they want to be part of the solution as opposed to the people who you know are kind of doing it after the fact and i think that's a big part of the culture that we're trying to build at skillshare like it's okay to have hard conversations and give people hard feedback and you know i realize not ever it doesn't matter what i say and i can say all day long that i'm open to it but i want people at skillshare to be able to have the hard conversations and give tough feedback to anyone, including me. And again, I may not like it and I may not agree with it, but I'm going to listen to it. The word that popped in my mind when you were describing that was intent. Uh, If your intent is to improve, like you're saying, to make things better, then you're you're all ears. And it it is hard to gauge that on Glassdoor. Are they just angry and trying to wound and not improve? Or are they actually trying to you know, give some helpful feedback. So it's so interesting. Yeah. I think as leaders, we have to think about the ecosystem too, that we're creating and the culture and the company for people to give feedback. And the best way to demonstrate that is to have them give you that kind of direct feedback and demonstrate how you're receiving yeah. it. And I'm hoping that your team will hear you hear this very interview and it'll help, you know, give more, even more momentum to that. Cause I think that's a really great example. Uh, now, You've worked for some pretty high-profile CEOs uh, in, in in the organizations. Obviously, you know the one you're in now, but uh, you know previous ones too. What's been uh, one of the most memorable lessons that you've learned? Yeah, I mean, I I've worked for some great people over the years, and I, I mean, I think um, you know when I think back to my first job at J.P. Morgan, you know, investment banks aren't really known as being hotbeds for wonderful, caring, empathetic management. <laughs> um, but yeah. uh, I got under your desk, right? Yeah. And, I, mean, uh... I, you know, I slept under my desk, but he cared that I was sleeping under my desk. Um, <laughs> okay, you, know, right. and, you know, I think what, what's, what he sort of showed me very early on is like the power, like I knew he cared about me as a person. He wanted to see me do well. He wanted hmm. to see me develop. He saw potential and he invested the time and effort and he he let me take some risks. Um, and so, you know, he, he put me in front of customers much, much earlier in my career. Most investment banks, you're not allowed out of the building until you've, you know, you're a VP. Um, and he was putting me in front of boards, giving valuation presentations, you know, my mm-hmm. first year. Um, so he gave me, he gave me a lot of rope and then made sure I didn't hang myself with it. Um, but because I knew he cared about me, when he gave me hard feedback, um, I listened. And, you know, it was easier to accept and digest and internalize and do something with it because I knew what it was coming from. And I worked for other MDs at that same bank who I knew didn't give a rat's ass. And when they gave you hard feedback, because mm-hmm. like, just a blow hard, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not listening. But when Kevin said something, I listened. Um, hmm. And I think the, uh, you know, I guess the other thing that stands out, uh, two other CEOs I worked for had like completely opposite styles. One was very consensus-driven, a lot of buy-in, a lot of ownership. Um, it, but I think, it, and so everybody was super bought in. Everybody felt like they got to have their say. Um, but when taken too far, exec meetings could turn into you know WWE. Um, and so <laughs> a wrestling you know, match. You know, there's just a lot of he wanted us to have conflict. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, and which is good, but I think if you survive the corporate version of Thunderdome, do you still have relationships when you come out of the room? Um, and do you have a cohesive strategy? It's tricky. Right? It's tricky. 
Yeah. And so, you know, and then I had another CEO that I worked for that was very top down, very command and control. Your job as an exec was to give him the information he needed to make his decision, which you would then go execute on. Ton of clarity, like super clear where we were going and why. Didn't get the buy-in. And the consensus-driven CEO um, hired a much higher caliber of exec because mm. I think, you know, really good people don't want to be told and dictated what to go do. They want to have some ownership and some agency. And so, you know, I try to find the balance between the two. I definitely lean more towards a consensus driven, but at some point you got to step in and make a call um, and you got to make sure whatever, you know, sort of back and forth uh, isn't ruining long-term relationships. Um, so I learned a ton from both of them uh, and both styles can work. It's just, they're just very different styles. And, and you build mm-hmm. a team around that style. Um, yeah. So I think that's, you know, those are kind of two things that immediately come to mind that I try to apply its culture. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. So when you're building a team, that's something to think about. For, for the leaders out there. Yeah, I like that. Who's going, you know, think about your own natural leadership tendencies and and the and the company you're coming into. You've worked for several different companies. You've led in different situations. And I suspect some of those might, you know, you come in and I know you've done some turnarounds. Mm-hmm. Is that more of a, was the top-down approach more effective in those, on many of those moments? Versus where you are now, which is more consensus, or or do you think as a leader you really need to be able to, to develop your skill set in both arenas? Yeah, I think the you know the, I don't know if you've probably read that book uh, was the first ninety days, and it kind mm-hmm. of talks yep. about like your style is very different if the house is on fire than if you've got plenty of time. Um, and my first CEO role, the house was on fire. Yeah, you know the the company was not in a good position. Uh, we did not have a lot of time. We did not have a lot of money, and the company had some pretty serious challenges that we needed to address. And you know, the joke at the time was, "Do I want to be the CEO of any company willing to make me CEO?" And it uh, it did not disappoint. Uh, <laughs> we had some work to do. Let's see what and, this is really like. Wow. Yeah, no, and, and I and I called my previous CEO and I just said, "Hey, I want to let you know all the times I talk smack about you behind your back, I take it all back." And he's like, "Oh, I know." Um, yeah, but as you uh, would think, your first case, CEO job is going to be really challenging no matter what. Well, this guy's yeah, to do it. They don't give you the keys to an F-16, you know, on your first mm-hmm. flight. Um, so, you know, we had a lot of work to do in a very short period of time, and we didn't have a whole lot of time for consensus building. And and I and my style was very, very different than my predecessor. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that there was half the company that was like, oh, my God, thank God you're here. And the other half of the company was, oh good Lord, what have we done? Um, and so, you know, there are people who had, you know, the part of the company had evolved around his style and his approach and that's what they liked and that's what they wanted. And the rest didn't, and they were happy to see me there. Um, but, you know, and I think even with, when I came into Oda, or excuse me, with uh, Skillshare, you know, Michael, our, our founder was still CEO. I came in as COO. We clearly had different styles Mm-hmm. Um, but that was by design. He wanted, he wanted to bring in a different set of experiences. And, um, and I think we had a m- much milder version. They were, 
people who are ready for the company to evolve and start to mature and grow up and um, including Michael. Um, and there were people who, you know, first time I made them get up and write a bunch of metrics on a whiteboard and explain what was going on. Uh, they weren't all that excited about it. Um, mm-hmm. So that change, we had more time. It was not, the house was not on fire. We could make those changes more gradually. I could build that consensus over time. So very different situations called for very different styles and timing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I really like that. It really plants the seed of possibly with leaders to think about, yes, you may have a preferred leadership style. And I, as we were talking about earlier, and it's important to be aware of what that is, but also to expand your capabilities so you can take advantage of other opportunities to work in other organizations that need different kinds of leadership. And then the other part I want to bolt on that that you said was, hey, once you get in there, you understand which what the business needs. Then you can build your team to complement your leadership approach. Yeah, yeah. I, and, and if you have the time to do that gradually, it's a much you know easier, more comfortable transition. If you don't, you got to rip off the bandaid and move quick, and that can be painful and disruptive and a lot of heartburn in the near term. So let's uh, so let's one, yep. Good. One mm-hmm. thing uh, quickly, you, know, you touched on that. Um, one, I got some great feedback from from uh, an executive coach I was working with. There was a particular you know, sort of group um, at a company that I was just having trouble communicating with. And the way I talk and the way I think and my approach just wasn't lining up. And, you know, her analogy was you speak German and they speak French and you can keep speaking German and you can speak German louder and you can speak German faster, and you can speak German more forcefully or more slowly or whatever you want, it's still German. So you either need to learn how to speak French or you need to give them the time and the coaching and the care to help them come up to speed on your German. Uh, But by the way, the faster solution is you just learn to speak French. Uh, And I thought that was some great feedback. it's, It's not, you know, it's not easy to do. I didn't want to speak French. I wanted to speak German, goddammit. Uh, <laughs> I'm but, so good. I'm so fluent wanna, in this and I'm so good yeah, at it. Yeah, do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? And, um, mm. you know, that was, a, a I thought, a, a really salient point. Yeah, it is a very salient point. And, yeah, you're great at speaking your own language and getting the results. And it speaks a lot to your openness to start to learn the language of other people. Yeah. Uh, and people you're working with, different industries, sometimes different generations, uh, right. you know, and learning to to make that connection and be that translator of what yep. you've learned in the past. Yeah, so, so valuable. Now, let, let's advance the conversation to what listeners are going to hear now. We're kind of on the, we think we're through the pandemic, hopefully here, uh, but it was crazy for a lot of people. And a couple of things come up, um, and I, I'm going to just kind of mention a couple of things. Maybe you can kind of get your perspective on this. So, obviously, Skillshare for the listeners, a lot of remote learning taking place in your business model, right? Because people are all over 800,000 subscribers. Um, and a lot of schools, a lot of people that learned in person started learning remotely during that time period. And uh, I do a lot of remote training too. I enjoy doing that. And I found it was able to a great way to grow and reach people and help people. Then I'm seeing research like uh, recently that that uh, for, for fourth graders and eighth graders, and I know you're not necessarily targeting that audience with, with your company, but it didn't go well for them. Going from the classroom, there was a big drop-off in a lot of places. 
when when they had to go remote. Um, things are coming to mind is you know what's the what do you think of what's your sort of mental approach and thought process of doing teaching and training in person versus doing it remotely, and how did you see this go for your company and others? Uh, during the during the pandemic where there were lockdowns and things like that. Yeah, I, I guess the you know first kind of first part of the question is just when is in person versus remote like how do those different learning modes line up in different situations? I mean I think I had, you know, I've got four four daughters, um, one of which was in first grade and like watching her try to go through online learning uh, and watching the teacher try to go like my first grader was the IT support for her first grade teacher. So when the wow. teacher probably not alone Zoom in that breakout, too. Yeah. yeah wow. When she couldn't get the Zoom breakout to work, she'd say, Hey Abby, can you set this up for me? Uh so <laughs> do you the breakout rooms, Abby. Sure. That wasn't a big confidence builder. Um yeah. but um which you know, is Abby, interesting <laughs> CEO of Skillshare having his first grade daughter anyway. So right, the, yeah. I was like, uh, oh, all right, nice job, Abby. Yeah, um, you've taught her. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, but like you were, you know, you read all the research now that those kids are set back a year, year and a half in learning. Um, so I think there's there's sort of a component of you're still at that age and at that stage, you're still learning how to learn. And so much of school is around just socialization and how to work with other people and listen and sit still and focus. And, um, you know, so I think that clearly was not the right model for elementary school kids. Um, I think for Skillshare, um, the remote model and just the sheer access to expertise and content that you can get through a model like ours. Mm -hmm. If you have already learned how to learn and you have the self-discipline and focus to go get what you want, there is not a better model out there. We have 40,000 classes. We have 13,000 experts. Um, just the sheer depth and breadth of what we offer for a, what I think is a very reasonable annual subscription. Um, I mean, you know, I think the in 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 the good old days, you walk down to the local community college and you took the Adobe Photoshop class, and now mm. you can take whatever class you want, whenever you want, from wherever you want, from five different people, and get all you know all these different perspectives. So, I just think if you are, yeah, again, I would not teach elementary school education this way. But for grownups who are loaded, looking to upskill, develop new skills, or you know, even just have a nice, healthy, positive distraction from the chaos of everything going on around them, mm -hmm. um, which we certainly had, you know, in, in 2020, I just don't know that there's a better model out there. Um, so I, you know, and, and I think what's interesting is we are now one of the things that we've heard and seen the value of community and learning as a group is still mm. really important. Mm. Uh, and that's something that we've built into our model. It may be online and it may be asynchronous, um, but you get to see other students' projects. You get to get feedback from other teacher and from other students. Like, So you still have those community and shared learning experiences. It's just in a different delivery mode. Um, but we, had a, we have a ton of activity around, you know, we, we were running live classes during COVID and they were great. People loved them. Um, and so that's something we're taking a closer look at. Um, we've actually started to play around with some in-person events. Uh, and okay. that was actually the origin of Skillshare was 
Um, it was a community driven model, but the classes were in person. So oh, we were, okay. we were kind of the first version, we were the love child of general assembly and meetup. Um, and it worked great in New York city. We had trouble scaling it outside of that. So we flipped online to get the, you know, the broader distribution okay. and access. But mm. now that we've got scale, we're actually looking at, all right, do we do a live class in Chicago? Or do we do a, a conference and, you know, have a bunch of teachers come in and teach live classes for three days at a central location just to give people that little, you know, jolt of human interaction. So I, I don't think any mm. one's not right and the other's wrong. I think there's a mix of both and just kind of pair, depends on who you are, where you are, what you're trying to learn. Yeah. So one of man, that was really, that was a cool response. Uh, so the leaders listening today are probably thinking about developing their teams, developing themselves. And one of the takeaways I have is to think about where is your team in its learning process? And, you know, if they are more in the mode of learning how to learn more foundational stuff, it may be better sometimes to, uh, to have them in person uh, or have a hybrid model. And perhaps as they move up the learning curve, and they need more specialized, you know, getting more access to more experts online, of course, is going to be, it's going to be more accessible to them. But there's a lot, I think there's some really good comments on there. And also, I think just one of the takeaways for me is to remind leaders today to be open. There are possibilities for hybrid learning, for community learning that are coming. And you're hearing from Matt here. I mean, Skillshare is on the, on the, kind of on the, the front edge of this. So this is what's coming for people. Um, and well, I think, and I think, I think it's really it, cool. It, yeah. And I think it applies to remote work as well. Um, you know, I, I mean, we've gone fully remote, uh, fully distributed as a team. Uh, luckily, our office, our lease expired December of 2020. So we just never renewed. And we figured, hey, if we change our mind, there will be plenty of real estate available. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the the companies that are saying like innovation can't happen unless you happen to be all in the same room. Like, come on. Like you tell me no innovation happened the entire year of 2020 and most of 2021. Like it's just not in, in every single team at Google and Facebook and, you know, Spotify, they all are literally in the same physical room every single day. Like it's just not possible. So I, I just, when companies take this hard line of like, you have to come back. It, well, I just point my recruiter at all their engineers and say, hammer away. Um, Cause I just don't believe. <laughs> Here's an know, opportunity. I, yeah. I just don't, I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's more driven by the fact they just spent a bunch of money on real estate, not because they actually don't believe work can get done in a distributed environment. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Certainly in the technology world, uh, where your people are used to using technology. I mean, it's I think it's a really tough argument to have everybody has to be in person all the time. Yeah. Um, and we'll see how it kind of trickles out through the other industries. Uh talk a little bit, and, and I think this ties in what you're talking about on in hiring engineers and whatnot. So there are two things, and I enjoyed reading about them, equity, grant, transparency, and no negotiation salaries. And these are two things that you're looking at comp and compensation with transparency. And really, it seems like you're really opening your playbook for everybody to say, this is how we do it here. And what I'm curious, so what are the pros 
and maybe some of the cons of uh, uh, of taking that really open approach on the sensitive items. Yeah, I think for I'll start with the the no negotiation salary. I think the you know pay equity has just been it's been a problem for a long time, and you know sometimes it was just flat out discrimination, and sometimes it was you just happened to be negotiating when the company was either in a strong position or a weak position. And as a result, you had people sit next to each other doing the exact same work at the exact same time for 10 to 15% difference in, in comp. That's clearly mm-hmm. not fair. It's not equitable. It's not right. Um, and I think the, so, so we, we moved to this model where we have, we have levels and the starting comp at each level for each role is set. And yep. If you're coming in as a you know level three engineer, the comp is X, and we're not going to negotiate, and and we evaluate what those levels and what those comp ranges or comp you know set comp points are based on what's market. So we have to stay competitive, and they'll move up based on what we see going on in the market. But once it's set, it's set, and if we move it up because we need we realize the market's moved and we need to be more competitive, anybody else in the company that's at that level gets moved up too. Um, mm. So the new, because you always get this dynamic where the new people are making more and the old people are making less and they feel like they got screwed. And that so is, yeah, because they're trying to that. attract people during the great resignation. Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's, it's tricky. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think one of the best side effects of that is once you say, look, our pay is X, we will not negotiate, not a penny. It forces you to talk about all of the other things that make Skillshare a great place to work. Let's hmm. talk about the flexibility. Let's talk about the culture. Let's talk about the fact that we treat you like grownups. Um, yeah, let's talk about all of the other things that make it a wonderful place to work other than money. Uh, because the fact is you can walk down the street. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you're doing. You can walk down the street, go somewhere else and make more money. Hmm. So there's got to be something that keeps you here at Skillshare. And what is that? It's the mission. It's the people that we support. It's the unbelievable teachers that work on our platform. It's the inspiration, the personal and professional development that all of our students get from our platform. Like those are the things that I want us selling as a company, not, okay, fine. I'll give you another five grand. So you'll say yes. Uh, And it builds a much healthier dynamic coming in the door, employee base. Like we have people who are driven by what we do, not how much we pay. Yeah, I, I think that you you nailed it uh, for me on that last statement because you're going to attract a certain kind of person who's willing to look beyond the dollars and look towards the mission and meaning. And uh, yeah, and if they, yeah, so it, 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 you're, you're it, like, it, I'm not going to adjust my entire comp for my entire company because you want more money to bring you in, even if you are awesome. Well, that's, yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, we are yeah. paying, you know, we're paying. And the 60 to 70th percentile. So we're paying competitively. It just allows me to really close the deal based on the things that matter mm-hmm, for long-term mm-hmm. retention. Yeah. Um, and I think on the on the equity side of that, it's just, you know, the trying to understand for most people, trying to understand the value of the equity that you're being granted. You know, most people aren't that well educated in options pricing and yeah. exercise price and like you know, who can, who can rattle off the Black Shoals option pricing model? You know, like it's just <laughs> I was an international thing. finance major. And I still, I'm still, right. I have to, you know, refer to it because it's, 
Yeah, it's it's complicated. Like you have to make sure it means something, right? To to people. Yeah. Yeah. So we tried to create a a very simple sort of paint by numbers buildup of how you really understand what value you're being given. Um, and hey, these are the multipliers that we use for our equity grants. Somebody else may use something else, but even if they don't do it this way, and most companies don't, you are now much better informed and you can ask a lot of really pointed questions to get to the value that you're actually being granted. Yeah, I, I checked that out and I really liked it. And I'm going to put that in the show notes for leaders because if you're trying to ki- kickstart this conversation in your company, or maybe you have it out there today and people don't really understand, I thought it was a really nice grid of how to explain it. And it was very mm-hmm. obvious. So that, that was really cool. Uh, but I, I've got to ask you something. So you, I'm going to take you back to your Odesk, Elance, Upwork days. And uh, what did you learn about delegation working mm-hmm. in a company that, to me, a lot of times is is selling delegation to yeah. entrepreneurs, small business owners? For So for me, I, and this is not an advertisement for, I mean, I, I used Odesk a lot back in the day and now I use Upwork for projects. And if I'm not delegating, I don't have that mindset. I don't think I have much use for that, that platform. But when I step into that, it becomes essential. And so I'm curious, what did you learn about delegation working there? Yeah, I think it was like seeing particularly early days. And I started when I think I was employee number 23. Um, At at, at Odesk, right? At Odesk, yeah. yeah. And just seeing the the startups and the entrepreneurs who had cracked the code and figured out how to use it, how to really get leverage by delegating. Like Uh it was amazing what people were building and how efficiently they were building it um, by pulling together these global distributed teams of freelancers and, you know, sort of this myth that you can only find top quality engineers in Silicon Valley is just bullshit. Like, there's unbelievable talent all over the world that can do extraordinary things. And to be able to tap into that on demand, I mean, I, you know, I, I feel like I'm still Upwork's best salesman. Um, you know, I just, I believe in the model. I saw it work. I saw it work for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of companies and startups. Um, so and it's a, you know, and it's a great lesson, again, whether you're using Upwork or it's just, how you delegate day to day um, within your teams, um, you know, just getting the right work in the right people's hands just gives you so much leverage. Um, now it takes work. You don't just throw it over the wall and hope it comes back. You got to invest in the people. You got to be clear on what your expectations are. Like, and the I think the thing I've said I sort of learned then, and I've said consistently since is. If you're a crappy manager, if you're a mediocre manager in person, you are going to be atrocious with a distributed team. <laughs> you know, it just takes more structure, more discipline, mm-hmm. better communications. So remote work and distributed teams, you know, they have downsides. You don't pick up as much through osmosis. You got to be more deliberate and, and more structured. Um, but there's a ton of opportunity and a ton of gain to be had when you get it right. Yeah, look at it. That's what one of the things that came to me looking at your background and preparing for the interview is that you you had this experience at Odesk, and now you're working. I mean, this is you're working on the ultimate distributed company now with teachers all over. Your students are all these places, and and are now our employees are all over. 
I mean, we were now your employees. Started, we were 100% New York City, and now we're probably 15, 20%. Do you do you believe? And this may be a rhetorical question, but do you believe that that early experience at Odesk really helped you see the possibilities early on from yeah. a, having a remote team, and because you saw it in action in so many different ways? Yeah, and it just you know you saw just irrefutable evidence that you could build amazing teams with these, you know, with this like extraordinarily global talent base. Um, and so we've, you know, we've replicated that model in many ways at Skillshare. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. I've, I've taken some of my executive coaching clients who, you know, are working, leading their teams and they're working on something, but they don't really know how to get involved or whatever. I said, Hey, just go to try Upwork. And he's like, yeah. and they're like, I don't want to try that. That's once you walk them through doing a proposal on there, having it designed something really simple. Yeah. You can just see a light bulb go off and they're like, wait a minute. You know, I don't have to always hire for this. I can try external, see how it goes, see how the workflow is. And then, um, you know, take that approach. And I mean, it's, it's yeah, really one of the, one of the interesting things I, so I built out the enterprise business at, at Odesk and we did some early research on right, who, you know, who within the existing customer base is exact level at a meaningful company. The number of CEOs that we found who were creating little skunk works teams on Upwork or Odesk to do stuff that, you know, they didn't want to distract their core team or, they just couldn't get buy-in, so they said, screw it, I'm going to do this on the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was unbelievable. I mean, like 2030 name brand Silicon Valley really? CEOs had little skunk work projects on the side. Because cool. um, it was just a quick way to spin something up, get a prototype built, and come back and show it to the team and see what they thought. All right. I mean, I don't I don't want to go any further. I mean, that is a great place to end this for because you, we talked about this brings us full circle. We talked about you infusing the entrepreneurial spirit, spirit uh, at, at at Skillshare uh, in your introduction, and this is a great way to do that. Really opening the playbook for leaders on how they think about their leadership, uh, how they think about their teams, and they and how they're developing them. And man, so many good things today. Um, and yes, I mean the create your own skunk works. Yeah. Well, <laughs> through, and, uh, using you know, the tools out there, give it a shot. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, when I look at, you know, what skill, what Odesk and Upwork were doing for teams, I think Skillshare is sort of doing for the individual. That same yeah. leverage you get through being able to, you know, farm out work to a global team, you can get the same individual. And whether, again, whether that's personal or professional, by tapping into all of this expertise that is all over the planet, that if you're, you know, sitting in rural Idaho, you don't have access to the artists and the engineers and the designers and the creatives that you can now tap into through this global learning platform, you know, at Skillshare. So I think there's there's some really interesting threads there that it's a very similar concept applied to the individual more micro level uh, at Skillshare, but it's the you know, same concept hold, holds up. Yeah, I think that I always... And we always spend a lot of time after our interviews trying to think about like what's the best short description of the of the interview because we we, we covered so many things. But to me, what's resonating, and I almost still keep working on it here, but it's like the newer way or the the uh, the new way to build and lead your team using technology, using 
using, we talked, you know, talked about Skillshare, talked about getting access to talent around the globe with Upwork. There's a lot of ways to do it, but it starts with opening your mindset as a leader and trying these new ways and being open to it. Yeah. I guess there's also, you know, the, the early promise of the internet, certainly for, for e-commerce and, you know, companies like eBay was just that global aggregation of demand, right? Like there were, there were, there wasn't enough of a market for broken laser pointers for eBay to build a business with physical stores. But when you aggregate it globally, all of a sudden beanie babies, you've got a liquid market for beanie babies Mm -hmm. with Upwork they applied that same aggregation of talent and demand for talent. And now with Skillshare and online learning, it's the aggregation of the expertise and the learning and the demand to develop in all of these different areas. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's still a global aggregation of demand and supply applied to sort of different, different models and different businesses. The new beanie babies model. Yeah. <laughs> That's a cool documentary too, (laughs) how that went. All right, Matt, thank you for coming on the show today. A lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate you having me. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.